0: For those of you who have been with us, we, you know that we're in a series on Romans 8 and we're calling it More Than Conquerors. And we're coming to the end, the final stretch of this series. And I gotta admit, I'm a little bit sad because it's been a wonderful study for me personally. I've absolutely loved it. It's been, as I said from the beginning, the kind of uh, Mount Everest of, of scriptural revelation. It's this pinnacle, this peak. And beginning from verse one, we've been climbing and climbing and climbing. And I want us, if we can, can, to get a sense of the momentum of this chapter, okay? I know that we haven't read and we won't take the time to read the whole thing, but if you look at verse 31 of Romans chapter 8, he says, what then shall we say to these things, all right? What then shall we say to these things? We need to pause a moment and, and ask, okay, what things is he talking about? Well, I, as I read the book of Romans from beginning to end, I think what Paul is talking about is all the things that he's Written. Paul is writing probably on a scroll, and it's almost as if he takes the scroll and he unfolds all these words that he's written up to this point, and he takes a glance back and he says, What then should we say to these things? It's like we've been on a hike with Paul. We've come up this mountain of Romans chapter 5, verse 1 that says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We've been taken through the steeps of Romans chapter 6, through the valley of Romans chapter 7, and now with Romans chapter 8 verse 1, we have this grand declaration that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He takes us past the granite ridge of the fact that we have been filled with the Spirit of God. We are now alive in Christ. We are not under obligation to sin anymore. We have the privilege of calling God, Abba, Father. We have, the, we have the absolute assurance that because of God's Spirit within us, we are His sons and daughters. And that when we pray, even our perplexed prayers are translated by the Spirit into effective prayers. And we have the assurance that for those who love God... All things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. We've come to the peak. We've come to the top of the mountain. And now what's there left to do? The tone changes with this question to one of celebration. From verses 31 to 39, instead of there being a teaching, yes, there's information being imparted, yes, there's truth being given, but the atmosphere is charged with celebration. And that's what we have here in verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? So the title of this sermon this morning is, If God is for Us. If God is for Us, a Celebration. Now, let's take that question there. If you'll notice, there are a lot of questions. The answers are so obvious that there is, not nece- there is no reply necessary. But what I want to do this morning is to see how this celebration is unfolded in three parts. Am I holding our deepest suspicions to the light of this celebration? First of all, I want us to ask the question, is God holding something back from me? We see this in verse 32. Is God holding something back from me? And then secondly, the the second question we're going to ask that expresses a suspicion we might have is, will God hold something against me? And we see this in verses 33 and 34. And then from verses 35 through 39, we see, will God allow something to come between Him and me? So these three questions... Holding our suspicions against the light of the celebration and seeing, will our suspicions survive? Because sometimes we can become suspicious of whether God really loves us. Are the things that are going on in my life right now, are they a proof that God has forgotten about me, that God will abandon me, that God will hold something against me? And I want, you to, I want to challenge you this morning to take your deepest suspicions in the light of this greatest celebration, and see what happens. First of all, verse 32, is God holding something back from me? Is God holding something back from you? Have you ever thought that? I was recently reading a story to my children about a missionary, Isabel Kuhn, and the story tells about how Isabel and her husband moved into a small house on the mission field, and she decided that she was going to make this little house as pretty as she possibly could. And so she bought some good furniture and a big rug that covered the floor nicely. The trunk that she had brought from Vancouver was in the corner of the main room, and she covered it with another beautiful traveling rug. And when the first visitors arrived, she wanted to be a good missionary and be hospitable. When the first missionaries arrived, she seated her guests around the sitting room and began to explain the gospel as best she could. She was so happy that they began to understand because she had studied the, the language. And then her heart began to sink. She noticed an elderly lady who had discovered that her nose was blocked and promptly cleared it, wiping her fingers on Isabel's beautiful rug. And then a young mother lifted her baby son and carried him to the door, but she was in no hurry, and a wet streak was left all along Isabel's other rug. She says she managed to keep her face bright, but inside she felt sick. She kept talking until the visitors chose to leave, and as she turned She stood at the door. She called out the customary farewell. Travel slowly and come again. And then she turned and went inside the house. And staring at her soiled furniture, she thought, so this, this is life as a missionary. She would never have pretty things. God's holding something back for me. Have you ever thought that? Have you had the feeling in life that, that there's something good out there that you could have, but God has said no? Like everyone else got invited to the party and you were left out. Like God is not really good. Well, you think, of course He's good, but He's good to everybody else, but not to me. I wonder if that suspicion sounds familiar. Wasn't that the same suspicion that was whispered in the Garden of Eden when the devil came and tempted Eve and said, Has God really said that you are not allowed to eat of just any fruit in the, the garden? Oh, God knows that in the day that you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be opened and you'll understand good and evil, and you'll be like, Gods, oh, you naive little thing, God is holding something really good back from you. It's the it's the oldest trick in the book. The suspicion that there's something good out there beyond that God is saying you can't have. Now, how do we overcome this suspicion? I mean, in the soundproof basement of your soul, have you ever wondered that? It can happen, maybe you're a teenager, a young person, and you think, man, my family got the raw end of the deal. We never have enough money. The rules are too strict. God's holding something good for me. A single person longing to be married, God is withholding something wonderful from me. To a married person who is unhappy in his or her marriage, God has given me something that is not good. What is the reply to this suspicion? What is it that we see in verse 32? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Here is the reply to this suspicion. God's holding something back from me. He's given you Jesus. He cannot give you a greater gift than Jesus. He has proved His infinite love for you definitively, decisively at the cross of Calvary when Jesus Christ died for your sin. No greater gift could be given. There could be no greater proof that God is willing to give you everything Everything. That's why we read Psalm 84 and verse 11 that no good thing will He withhold from those who walk uprightly. God's holding nothing back from you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. To That sneaking suspicion that may rear its poisonous head within your heart, this atmosphere of suspicion could be absolutely crushed in the light of God's love demonstrated by the giving of Jesus for you. There's a parallel passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 21 and 23. I want to read these words to you. Just listen carefully. Paul says to these Corinthians, For all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or the life or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Now, I want us to understand very carefully the logic of this verse. It's not merely that God is willing to give you good things. It's that God has given you everything good. It's not just that God is willing to give you some good things. It means that everything that there is is for your good. I mean, this is essentially a restatement of what we learned in Romans 8, verse 28. All things work together for good, not just the things that seem good, not just the pieces of the puzzle that make sense that you think can fit into your life, but everything, even the parts that you simply right now, you think, I don't understand how this can possibly be woven within the tapestry of God's work for my life. I don't understand how it could possibly be good, and yet it is that very thing that God says, no, this is for your good too. This is a gift through Jesus Christ. How do you know? God has given you Jesus. And He's proven His love for you. But you might be thinking, I know it says that, but I sincerely do feel deprived. I feel that God has taken away something from me or withholding something from me that I truly need. It could be that in all honesty you'd say, I don't understand how this circumstance could be working for good. But God doesn't call us to understand exactly how. God calls upon us to believe that. It's like that song that says, if you never speak another word of blessing and the silence leaves me with a sense of loss, I'll remember when my heart begins to question any doubt that you loved me was settled where? At the cross. You think God's holding something back from you? You think God can turn anything that He gives you into a gift for your good? When I was studying this verse, especially the phrase, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? I was reminded of a video that Dean and Nancy Carlson shared with me. They gave me their permission to share this with you. Many of you know that years ago, back in 2002, their little baby boy, not yet a year old, suddenly died. Later on, they Recorded their thoughts on that in a video, and I want to quote a few words that Dean said because I thought this would help us, help just illuminate this for us, this idea that how will he not also with Jesus graciously give us all things? Reflecting on the death of their son, Derek, Dean said, when events happen in our lives, God means it to grow us for our good and his glory. And at some point, you have to stop asking why and seek to glorify God through the situation. It used to be hard, Dean says. Derek died in October. He said, Octobers used to be hard. Now I look at October, I look at this season, and these are the words that stuck out to me. Dean said, as a gift. as a gift? If God did not spare His own Son, how will He also not with Him graciously give us all things? God's love is so powerful, it doesn't just keep bad things from happening to us. It turns those bad things into gifts for His glory Is God holding something back from me? That's the suspicion that we often find within our hearts. But because God has given you Jesus, it means that everything is yours too as a gift for your good. And Jesus' death and His resurrection, it is God's proof that He can and does take everything, even the worst possible thing, which is the death of the Son of God, He turns the worst possible thing into the greatest possible good. And you can know that. Is God holding something back from me? Here's a second suspicion. Will God hold something against me? Will God hold something against me? Look at verses 33 and 34. The, the verse, verse 32 dealt with the suspicion. Does God hold something from me, as if there's some good out there that God's not letting me have. And and definitively, in the atmosphere of celebration, God's saying, no, I've given you Jesus. You have everything that you need. But now we might think, is God going to hold something against me? Oh, because we know within our hearts that we are sinners. How does he respond to that? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? In the courtroom of God's justice, will any accusation stick? It is God who justifies who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Here is the reply to this suspicion, this fear that, that legitimately resides within our heart. Is God going to hold something against me? And the fact is that the argument up to this point in the book of Romans is that God declares righteous those who are unrighteous because of the death of Jesus Christ on their behalf. So no, God has justified you if you're in Jesus Christ. He's declared you to be righteous because of Jesus' righteousness. Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised... Who is at the right hand of God, and he's interceding for us. What is Jesus interceding? He's saying, Forgive them, oh, forgive, he cries, nor let that ransomed sinner die. Jesus' eternal intercession, his vicarious death, his glorious resurrection secures our justification, our eternal security. If you're in Jesus Christ, God will hold nothing. Against you, But let me, just, let me just clarify it with these words, it is only if you are in Jesus Christ. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, you have no part of the celebration. This is the exclusive privilege of those who have cried out to Jesus as their Savior from sin. Because as the Bible says, yes, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not, what? perish. But those who don't believe in Jesus, the Bible teaches us, will perish. But for those who are in Christ, God will hold nothing against us. I've recounted this story before in a previous sermon at the beginning of Romans 8, but it's worth recounting again about Martin Luther, the 16th century reformer that it captures the sentiment of, of this man and the truths of Scripture. And the story goes something like this, that the devil would often come to Luther and whisper in his ear, accusing him of all manner of filthy sin, like, Martin, you are a liar. You're greedy. You're lustful. You're a blasphemer, a hypocrite. You cannot stand before God. And finally, Luther responded, It's true. That is what I am and you haven't named half of it. You can give me your full list, and I could double it and make it complete, but hear this you foul accuser. My Savior has died for all my sins. Those you mention; those I could add, and indeed those I have committed but am so wicked that I am unaware of having done so. But it does not change the fact that Christ has died for all of them. His blood is sufficient, and on the day of judgment I shall be exonerated because He has taken all my sins on Himself and clothed me in His own righteousness. Those are the words of a person who knows who, who is to condemn. Will anyone bring a charge against God's elect? No, because God is the one who justifies. God not only only turns a deaf ear to any accusation, but He sees the perfect intercession of Jesus Christ. This is what is going on right now. Jesus is interceding for you. It's like the song that says, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see Him there who made an end to all my sin." Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's what God does for us who are in Christ. Will God hold something against me? Will God hold something against you? Not if you're in Christ. Because of Jesus, God has declared us righteous. Now here's a third suspicion that we see addressed beginning in verse 35 to the end of the chapter. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Will God allow something to come between Him and me? We looked at the suspicion, will God hold something, will, is God holding something back from me? Will God hold something against me? Now, will God abandon me? Will God abandon me? Notice how this is expressed Paul says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Notice carefully that this is not a naively optimistic view of life. Those are some pretty hard things. Scripture does not condone a kind of gullible, everything is going to be just fine kind of approach to life. That's why Paul quotes this from the Psalms. He says, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. What is he admitting? He's admitting that bad things do happen to God's people. You do experience suffering and loss and pain. You do go through times of loneliness and doubt and and wondering and the feelings of of abandonment, you you do experience these things, health crises and mental crises and all kinds of things that that we go through. The the Bible never denies that. The question is not, does God's love keep me from suffering? Here's the question. Is God's love powerful enough to use the suffering for our good? And he lists here things that cannot separate us from the love of God. Look at verse 38, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else, and all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Jesus Christ our Lord, love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look at earlier in verse 35. He lists some things, other things that could potentially be a demonstration that we are being separated from the love of God. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. How do we reconcile that with this declaration in verse 37 that we are more than conquerors? What kind of love is this? Well, let's start by considering a love that we're very familiar with, the love of a husband and wife expressed in a marriage covenant. Normally when two lovers talk to each other, they say things like this, I'll love you as long as I live, no matter what happens. In other words, there are things out there that could potentially weaken our love for each other but despite those things we're going to still love each other take the con- traditional marriage vows i the grooms take you the bride to be my lawfully wedded wife to have and to hold from this day forward for better for worse for richer for poorer in sickness and in health until death do us part what are these vows saying they're saying despite these obstacles I'll continue to love you. No matter the circumstances, my love for you will persist. But there's something about God's love that is completely different from this. Notice that in verse 37, Paul does not say, despite all these things, we are more than conquerors. What does it say? It says, in all these things. Not despite, in. In other words, saying, my love for you is of a completely different kind than human love. I mean, human love would remove the obstacles. Human love would get rid of the trials. Human love would flatten the difficult circumstances. But God is saying, my love for you is so powerful that it transforms those trials into the very means of your victory. That's what it means to be a more than conqueror. Not to merely get rid of the trials, but to use the trials for your good and His glory. Now that is supernatural love. That is boundless love. That is permanent love. That is love that you can take a hold of and find security in that will give you hope and confidence for the rest of your life no matter what the circumstances. Why? Because none of these things can separate you from the love of God. No, none of these can, not only can they not separate you from the love of God, they are God's very means for bringing you to greater conformity to the image of His Son, which is your good and His glory. That is the meaning of God's love for you. That's what it means to be a more than conqueror. Human love would take back the friend and take away the loneliness, but God's love uses the loneliness to show you the joy of abiding in Him. Human love would evaporate the overwhelming circumstances, but God's love uses the circumstances to reveal the peace that only He can give. Human love would take away the cancer, the memories of abuse, the years of loneliness, the bitter words that you rehearse over and over again. Human love would just erase that, but God's love makes them the very means of His good plan for you. Human love would avoid death, but God's love makes even death the pathway to life. And that's why Paul goes on to say, I am sure. Can you say that? Does this celebration of God's boundless love, does it just boil up within you a confidence, a suspicion of... Flattening sort of confidence in God's love that can say, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. D- does, it, does it just well within your heart, that sort of confidence? You can have that because God has proclaimed to you, this is what my love is for you. In the 1800s, a young man named George was studying to become a pastor. He was intelligent and handsome and full of life, and he was engaged to be married but something was happening to George that he did not understand at first. He was having trouble seeing. And after a visit to the doctor, George learned that he was going blind, irreversibly blind. And if that were not bad enough, when his fiance found out, she felt that she could not go through life with a blind man. And she broke off the engagement. And for years, George's sister cared for him. But eventually, George's sister... Got engaged to be married, which meant that she would no longer be ca- able to care for George like she had. And it was on the eve of his sister's wedding that George Matheson penned the words to this hymn, O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer fuller be. There is the love that will not let us go.